Recently, Lango Dean sat down with Vice Admiral Adam Robinson for an in-depth conversation. Topics range from the importance of global health security, his introduction to COVID-19, tips and suggestions on how to improve global health security, and much more. Stay tuned for CCG Media's presentation of A Conversation with Vice Admiral Adam Robinson, featuring Lango Dean. Good afternoon again, Dr. Robinson. This is just a preamble, and we're going to go straight into the questions. But as a background, of course, we know that the COVID-19 pandemic, since it emerged, has been going on now for about seven months. So we, what we want to do with this story is we want to present this authority figure who can tell us how we're going to get a handle on the virus and the issues that crop up and how people are doing, everyone is doing, and how we can do the best job to control outbreaks uh, um, and other setbacks. So now I'll open up the questions and we'll start with the first one, which is, why is global health security needed today? So Lango, thank you very much. Uh, and I want to say that global health security is needed because the threats keep coming. If you uh, take a historical viewpoint, SARS was in 2003, there was a pandemic influenza in 2009, there was an Ebola outbreak in 2014, and then Zika in 2015. We've had regional outbreaks of different diseases such as yellow fever and H7N9 influenza, and we've had a, a repeated number of infectious disease that have caused global if not a pandemic, they've caused global infections in places, and now we have the COVID-19 global pandemic. So the point of why do we need health security? Because our global health is at risk unless we are proactive and take an open and a very uh, um, ecumenical look at what threats do we have that will affect our political and economic uh, stability. Thank you, Dr. Robinson. This is such a, I know you've mentioned all the um, problems that we've had, the epidemics and global infectious disease outbreaks that we've had in the past. Incidentally, I originally come from Sierra Leone, Freetown, Sierra Leone. So 2014 was a particularly difficult time for us who originally came from that region with thousands of people dying. Um, and there have been other flares around the world as well. So what I want to sort of like ask before going to the next question is, where were you exactly when you heard about COVID-19? Uh, I heard of the COVID-19 infection probably in November or December of 2019. And I think I heard it, I think I read something in a journal of the American Medical Association. I am a physician and I read that journal frequently, but it wasn't, it wasn't an alert. It was a mention of, of an infection of a, of a SARS type of uh, 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 pulmonary infection that, was, uh, that seemed to be uh, coming around the world. 
the first time that I remember hearing about it then was on national news on, on some outlet in January. And then the rest of the history is, is pretty clear because February and then March, but we, we in the United States uh, didn't take a, a particularly active view. I can also remember this. Um, I remember that when I first heard of the WHO test, testing procedures and the fact that they had testing kits and that they had offered it to the United States, and I think I heard that in January, I was somewhat upset, when I say upset, perhaps too big a word, but I was very concerned that we didn't take WHO up on their offer to supply those because I thought that we would need to have that particular resource in order to mitigate and, and help track where we are going with the virus. So I have two other data points that I want to just throw in here because I think it is incredibly important. Um, we know now, and this is data that's coming from the CDC Center for Disease Control. It's coming from all over the world. When I was Surgeon General of the Navy in 2012, uh, it was, it was uh, the fact that in approximately 36 hours, an outbreak of any highly infectious disease can begin in a remote village in Africa, in Asia, in South America, in the United States, and can reach major cities on any continent in about 36 hours. So the fact that we are we have globalization, and I'm not speaking of globalization except for the fact that transportation and communication, but specifically transportation is such that we can get places very quickly that we've never been able to do before. And then the second thing is when I was, uh, again, Surgeon General, I was in several countries in which uh, I found that the zoonotic infections, those are the infections that occur in animals, uh, but that then and usually will only occur in animals, but then will mutate and can also occur in human beings. So while I was in Djibouti, uh, I recognized, and it was the custom, and I think still is, that there are many goats in particular that are kept inside the home where people live because goats are source of currency and therefore they are highly valued and they are also treated with great respect because of their because of their value but by the same token because human beings live so closely with the animals animals there are zoonotic infections that do pop up so there are two factors here first is the rapid spread of disease because of our ability to go places so quickly and the second one is the relationship that we've had with our animals, and this is worldwide, in which zoonotic infections can increase. Thank you, Doctor. I hear all of that. I hear that the background that you said, uh, the travels that you have made, your insights and your perspectives. So what would you say to our readers uh, who are reading, who are trying to make sense of all of this, who probably, um, you know, uh, the experience of third world experiences are not always exactly the same as people in more developed countries. So the, the experience of living with you and living very close to the earth or living with your animals, maybe it's something that happens in farming communities, but in urban areas, it's not something that's common apart from people having their cats and their dogs and that kind of thing. 
So what would you say, how would we get that knowledge and resources to assure global health security? So, so let me say that I think you're correct. When you're looking at third world, if you want to say, and, and I understand that, when you're looking at developing nations uh, and you say, well, I'm not a developing nation and I don't live with goats or sheep, but we do live with pets and pets are becoming increasingly more more a part of our families. But I also want to point something out. For example, with the COVID-19, the wet markets in China were thought to be one of the areas where the virus was first found. I do not know that that is true, but that's certainly what I've heard. The wet markets are those uh, meat and fish markets which people can shop in in large metropolitan areas. So my point is that zoonotic infections shouldn't be thought of to be only a, a developing nation or a rural nation or a rural uh, manifestation. It can happen in large cities. So you may say, well, you, we in the United States don't have such things as wet markets. You know, I would say that that's true to the extent that we don't have the variety of animals, but we do have markets in which fishmongers and butchers and other animals are there. But here's the key, and this is very important. If you take transportation, if you take the, the fact that you can get from one place to, the, to another place on this globe in, in, in approximately 36 hours, then you recognize that we are not immune and we cannot be isolated no matter how developed we think we may be, we can still succumb to viruses and to other uh, infectious diseases that will infect us and in some instances will kill us. So how do we get the knowledge and the resources to assure that we uh, can, can take care of this and can overcome what we're after? So the first thing I want to point out is that global health security uh, does three things. And if you have global health security, you can reduce the health or the disease burden, whatever community you live in, and you can also promote economic and political resilience and development. I think with COVID-19, the biggest problem that we're having is, and one of the reasons that we can't seem to get a handle or a clear handle on it in the United States in particular is that as COVID-19 has come to pass, we have had to shut down different parts of our societies in order to socially distance and to get a handle on the spread of the disease. And in doing that, we have, we have it has resulted in tremendous economic uh, uh, disaster in some instances, but there's been a tremendous economic uh, effect, and there's also been a political effect because people are now viewing some of the remedies to help mitigate the spread of the virus as being uh, a political act or action, and in fact, it isn't that at all. You know, John Hopkins University uh, says, and I've heard this being a station, being uh, uh, in Baltimore at the VA Medical Health Center here, uh, public health has no borders. I, I hear that coming out of many public health uh, universities and public health departments now. And I'll say it again, and that is 
public health has no borders. And in that regard, we really need to think in terms of how we should acquire the proper knowledge. And let me break the knowledge down into some sections. The first thing is we need to marshal the scientific leadership and, and expertise. And that includes things like the laboratory capacity and also the innovation that must occur in terms of how do we test, doesn't matter, just COVID-19, any disease, how do we test, how can we develop the different types of tests and how can we do it safely? Then we need to be able to collect the data analytics to drive the impact because that's going to be part of the solution as how we mitigate or overcome the disease. So the first part of acquiring knowledge then becomes the analytic part. With public health and with infectious diseases, there's a second part. And the second part then becomes coupling the analytics with human services. I'll just put human services here. What are human services? Social workers, non-government organizational workers, educators, the culture and, the cult and being culturally competent. What does all this mean? Well, for example, we need to have contact tracing. We need to have education so people will understand exactly what they should do. If we're talking AIDS, we'll have to have education regarding safe sex and condoms. If we're talking COVID-19, we'll need to have education regarding masking and social distancing and hand washing and then doing those things properly. And then we need to take in the cultural aspects of where we are because culture plays such a major role in everything that we do. And unless we become culturally aware and then have cultural competence, we will not be effective in the different areas that we have to go. So we need to go into an, to, uh, and have uh, an idea of what the culture is. And then we also need to do something else. We need to have a community-based intervention model. And what I mean by that is we need to know what we're going to do in any given community. If we're in New York City, a high density impact area, we need to have a community-based intervention model that is going to be uh, geared towards a high density, which would be different than if we were in Butte, Montana, where there is a low density. We need to make sure that we understand where we are, what we're doing, that we have the analytics, that we have the human services, the social workers, the educators, people who have cultural competency and who are able to make a positive effect in the communities where they are in order to make sure that we can mitigate infectious disease outbreaks, such as COVID-19. Wow. Thank you, Doctor. I mean, with everything you've said, this question almost seems redundant. Uh, why health security is a national security issue? Because all the various organizations and institutions that you've mentioned, universities, Johns Hopkins, I used to look at the map that they had at the beginning and I got so depressed after a while, I just stopped looking at it uh, because they kept such a, a good record of, you know, where, where every, uh, you had all these COVID-19 cases popping up all over the world. Um, so we have that side of it. Uh, we also had University of Maryland come into the picture because they, uh, they were working, uh, I think, alongside with Johns Hopkins trying to get testing done when, you know, they were talking about testing. And then contact tracing, I think they were the first uh, to sort of build a platform where contact traces, traces could be hired. 
uh, and, and then people were talking about making sure that the contact traces were people who were already in the community and culturally aware, so, such as social workers that you mentioned, uh, students who were studying social work, uh, people maybe who were delivering um, meals on wheels, that kind of thing. But so I'm still going to go ahead and ask that question: Why health security is a national security issue? Well, health security is a national security issue. Uh, this became apparent to me uh, as I found several things occurred, and this is in my career as a Navy Surgeon General. It actually before that, but when it came very clear from uh, when I was Navy Surgeon General, which was 2007 to 11, uh, and 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 it goes something like this. Um, Health issues such as pandemics, uh, first of all, are health issues. They're disease issues. They are, they are medical issues. They are those issues that uh, no matter who you are or where you are, if you are a physician, gram-negative and gram-positive bacteria or viruses or diseases, cancers, whatever, you don't really have to speak a language uh, that you, of the country or the area that you're in in order to sometimes be understood from a medical point of view. So I learned that medicine is, is in fact very similar to music, and that is it, it really has its own language. Of course, I recognize that the pronunciation or how you communicate may make a difference, and, and obviously with music you just listen to it. But, you know, when you're looking at slides of, of viruses or you're trying to read uh, the data reports coming out regarding the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, you'd be surprised that no matter no matter what language people would speak, they could still understand the graphs and the exponential increases and what happens there. So let me get more deep into the question of health security and national security. So the Washington Post uh, has said, and, and Just Security, which is another publication, have argued that we should expand the national security definition in light of the coronavirus, which which says that we need to talk and place greater emphasis on human security in the national security discourse. And why is that important? Because pandemics have a health consequence, that's obvious, but they also have a tremendous economic and political construct. There can be economic and political instability which is fomented directly because of an infectious disease or an illness which, can, which devastates a community. So the whole point of being secure, of having people who are not afraid, who are not going hungry, who do not have the necessary means to survive, all of these things are threatened when you have health security uh, issues or pandemics which will disrupt the normal social and medical order of a society. Uh, the Post and, and uh, the Washington Post and, and the other uh, the other periodical called Just Security have also suggested that we should add climate change and infectious disease in the human security arena of the national security discourse. And I think that that's very important. For example, we're all concentrating, and rightly so, on COVID-19 and the devastating effects it's had worldwide. Um, I can assure you that this, uh, the, the influenza season is coming. 
it will be uh, very deadly this year. We've had huge problems with measles, partly because measles with refugee camps and with very large groups of, of uh, people who have not had vaccination, and also the fact that measles vaccinations haven't been uh, utilized as much uh, as in the past years when, when infectious disease was such a killer of young children and of human beings, uh, vaccination and vaccines were developed. They were utilized, and the reason that we don't have smallpox and we don't have polio is because of vaccination. Unfortunately, we've also had a lot of attempts to undermine the, uh, the necessity and the safety of vaccines. And for that reason, we will have to suffer the consequences of having a recrudescence of diseases such as measles. Uh, influenza, again, we have vaccines every year. I don't think they're very well utilized by the public. They should be. And then we have COVID-19. COVID-19 has everyone's attention, and I only pray that when a vaccine is developed that will help us with COVID-19, that people will take it and will continue to take it, because I don't think that there will be only one COVID-19 outbreak. I think that we will have COVID-19, and it may become very similar to influenza. I am not a researcher. That's only a thought as a physician for where we should go. So I think that as you look at national security, you, you will find that global health security has become an integral part of the national security paradigm in any nation. I do not care whether you're speaking of China or Russia or it doesn't matter. National security and health security, global health security, are going to be uh, placed together. I want to emphasize one more thing again. I'm just going to reiterate this. We can try to keep diseases from spreading, but we do not travel by ships, which take days or weeks. We do not travel by cross-country wagons. We travel by cars and airplanes. We can travel fast. We can get places fast. We can go to remote areas of the world and be back in major metropolitan areas quickly. We have to make sure that we can keep up with the disease burden that we may carry when that occurs. You're listening to A Conversation with Vice Admiral Adam Robinson, featuring Lango Dean, presented by CCG Media. Well, thank you, Dr. Robinson. As you all know, uh, the Women in Color in STEM conference is made up of scientists, technologists, engineers, mathematicians, uh, what have you. It's the whole, the whole spectrum of people from the STEM world. And all of these women, uh, women of color, come from various communities. Uh, they work in various communities around the United States. They, they come from various communities around the world. And to your point, they also travel fast around the world. So to this community, how can organizations like this meet the goals of the global health security agenda you just talked about? And of course, we're going to throw in the question of where the jobs are, but 
I think that if you could just speak directly to this community and say, okay, this is what you can do as a community. This is how you can help. So I think that the uh, women of color is, and women of color in this particular STEM setting, the science, the technology, the engineering and mathematics section, is so important. I think that the women of color in STEM uh, does an intersectional approach of empowering women of color. What is intersectional? Intersectional just means, just my big word, that I throw in there to say, hey, listen, you're in uh, biology, you're a chemical or you're an electrical engineer, you are a, a, a data a computer, you, you have whatever that, you are a mathematician, doesn't matter, because you can fall into any of the categories that I've already talked about, both in terms of the analytics and in terms of the people that are involved and the, who have the, the professional competency and hopefully also the cultural competency. So that's the first part, and I think that that we can help uh, to make sure that we take those people, and in this instance, women of color, who have the intellectual ability, who have the innovative ability, who are blessed with a, a, a gifts uh, of that we have overlooked for so long. We need to tap into that underutilized and that community that has been, in my opinion, neglected so we talk about today, in today's world, the, 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 the subject of systemic racism. Uh, I'm not going to get into a systemic racism question now. I will only point out that if you look at this whole concept of uh, disallowing or, or, or disrespecting or deciding that people aren't capable of doing things, well, of course, you can't. He, she can't do that because she's a woman, or he cannot possibly be as smart as the other people because he is, uh, you know, this color or that color. All of that needs to get put away. Now, you may say this is 2020 and that's all put away. That is not all put away. So I'm sorry. People need to wake up, stop drinking the Kool-Aid. The mythology still lives, and it needs to be addressed. And that's what women of color has done. I think of people like Katherine Johnson, who just passed away, uh, who put us on the moon. And I can also think that she was doing things that computers now do for us, but she and other black women that she knew, and we're talking about 1950s, they were the human computers. She put us on the moon. So we need to make sure that we utilize those people. I'm also thinking in terms of, of folks that have developed things like uh, the thermostat or artificial heart pacemaker control units or, or the long-distance airplanes that we now have. All of these things are things that are developed by people of color and in very many instances by women of color. We need to make sure that we're tapping into those resources and the women of color does that directly. And it also makes sure that we leave no one behind and that we respect everyone's ability and that we tap out and get into those areas that we need to. Our country and actually our world has so many brilliant people who will never have the opportunity 
to do the things that they're capable of doing unless we, as a society, and as a uh, as a international uh, conference of people of human beings decide that we are going to make sure that we give everyone opportunity because the opportunity we give to others can in fact be the life-saving innovation or the life-saving procedure or the life-saving invention, whether that invention is a mechanical tool or a vaccine that will actually save our lives, our lives in the future. So this is a big, big, big topic. It seems almost as if it's endless, but and in some regards it is, because it is as endless as the human spirit and it is as infinite as the human intellect. So that's why this is very important. Wow. Well, I mean, did that mention is the endlessness and how infinite this all of this is? So here we are, uh, a lot of college graduates are coming out of university. We've heard, of course, of internships uh, being canceled uh, where you, you had to actually go in person. Although you, you actually have some employers who are stepping up and, and creating virtual inter internships where they try to replicate everything you would have done if you were walking into a building you're doing online. Not everyone is there yet, but quite a lot of people are there. But with everything you said against that backdrop, there's so many opportunities for people in global health. So where would you, if you were coming out of college today, where would you be looking to work? It's, if so if you were already thinking of working in health, in global health, where would you be thinking of working? Well, I, I, spent, uh, I spent 36 years on active duty in the United States Navy. And if I had it to do it over again, I would do the same thing. Because what I learned there, and, and I'm going to answer this in layers, so you, you stick with me now. I recognize there are a lot of people that say, I have, I don't want anything to do with military, don't even say that. Well, no, I'm not going to say that. I am going to say that. Because one of the things that we must do now, everyone must open their mind. They must not start excluding. They must start including. Because diversity is inclusive. And if you exclude, you are actually killing diversity. Diversity isn't about black or white. Diversity is about just that. It's about the variety of opportunities, activities, and capacities of all of the people you're working with. So I'm just throwing that out there to say the military is a great place to start, and the military has wonderful global health initiatives that are around the globe. The Department of State has the same thing. You know, medical diplomacy was one of the last things that I worked on as the Surgeon General of the Navy. Uh, in, in both uh, Africa and in Asia, uh, in Djibouti as an example, and also in Vietnam. Uh, those, those experiences still exist, and the Air Force and the Army have the same ones. I'm just suggesting that that's an opportunity that people should look at. I'm also going to tell you, I'm a graduate of Indiana University, both undergraduate and medical school, and Indiana University now has a School of, global, uh, of International and, uh, and Global Health it's a, uh, and there are global health and international uh, uh, parts of many universities that are coming around, international relations, international politics, global health. It's becoming uh, a very interesting and big topic. So Johns Hopkins, I think Massachusetts, 
uh, Indiana University. They, they are scattered throughout. And I'm, I'm talking of universities in the United States. There are also the London School of Economics and 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 the London School of Tropical Disease in in in, uh, in Great Britain. They're all over the place in in Paris and other places. These areas exist. I think that we need to really look at what you're after in terms of education. Be available to 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 be to have the mentoring that you need, and to also to also put in the hard work. My parents always taught me that you're not going to succeed or get what you want in life unless you're willing to make personal sacrifice in order to attain it. Now, I'm not talking about personal sacrifice of, of you know, of alms and, 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 and beating yourself. <laughs> I'm just simply saying that you have to want something and you have to stop what you're doing or stop having the fun or stop trying to make sure that your life is exactly what you want and start making sure that you're capable of, of establishing your own luck. And what does that mean? What does luck mean to me? Luck, from my point of view, is simply preparation. It's the transaction of preparation and opportunity. If you are prepared, when the opportunity presents itself, the luck you need is simply that transaction that you're ready to go and take up the mantle that that opportunity presents. So it's not it's not some uh, some specious thing. It's not some ethereal thing. It's really hard work that you've put in to do that. There are a number of places that are capable of helping you do that. And I would also suggest that I said the military. Uh, forgive me because I'm just going to go there. Public Health Service, Center for Disease Control, uh, National Institutes of Health. These are fantastic organizations. I have worked with the men and women of those organizations throughout my career. Many of them uh, have spent their entire careers in those organizations and have made a real difference in the world. So there are lots of opportunities. And one of the things that we must do, and I, I, I really would tell all folks to, that you have to think this way, you have to prepare yourself. You have to, to get into the academic and the intellectual areas that you're interested in. Don't do something because you think it's going to pay off. Do things that you're interested in because if you're interested, the passion will carry you through and it will also be a sacrifice that is made out of love and not out of some other uh, less noble uh, endeavor. So with those things in mind, I'll stop talking and, and, and let you ask more, but those are the things that I think uh, should, uh, should young people should be thinking about. Everything doesn't have to be university and, and, uh, and uh, higher education based. There are lots of, of agencies I haven't even gotten into the non-governmental organizations that exist in the world and are fantastic. They're not all fantastic, but neither are all the universities fantastic. But there are some things out there that people should look at and could be make a real difference in their lives. Uh, great pointers. Thank you, Doctor. Great pointers. Well, I think we're gonna we're gonna end where we started off because when we started, you were talking about communities that you've worked in uh, in various parts of the world. Uh, in less than 100 days, 
all roads would lead to Detroit. Community of Detroit is very similar to the one I live in in Baltimore. So what would you say to this community in terms of building capacities and surveillance, uh, disease detection? We've talked about contact tra tracers and outbreak response. What would you say? We have to be really smart. We have to take the information that is in front of us. We have to look at it carefully, and then we need to proceed with the intellectual abilities that we have in order to make a difference. As women of color come together, we need to have a virtual meeting, which we can do. We need to have a meeting that's absolutely inclusive. We need to have a meeting that will also be, and this is very important, you don't need to have political correctness as much as you need to have the truth. I'm not interested in perfection, but I am interested in clarity, because what gets us really uh, into a very destructive mode is when things are not clear and when, when people uh, absolutely try to uh, shade or cloud or obfuscate or cover the things that we all know and see and hear and we cannot understand why we, we, we have such cognitive dissonance when that occurs. So as the women of color come to meet and come together in uh, Detroit, we need to come together with the thoughts that we need to look very carefully at what our role can be in global health security, what we can do as individuals in order to help uh, address this problem and mitigate the problem. And you may say, well, it's way too big for one person. It is way too big for one person, but it's not too big for a thousand people because just like a virus replicates exponentially, knowledge and the knowledge that we accrue as individuals coming together in a group, that's also exponential in terms of its growth, in terms of its power, and in terms of its impact. We also need to let people know that for too long, and I have seen this in my career, I am a surgeon and I have seen that for years, women were always allowed in surgery. I can never say that I haven't seen women surgeons. I finished my surgery training in 1982. There were women then. But I will assure you of this, and I and make, and, and make this very clear. Women were not welcome. They were tolerated. Uh, very often, uh, African Americans and others weren't welcome, but they were tolerated. And by the way, if you're really good, then you're tolerated better. <laughs> but I'm not sure that anyone can ever say they are welcome. Well, it's 2020, and we need to get past that because the world will function with women as heads of state with women as university presidents, as inventors, as scientists, as educators, as leaders, and we need to be at the forefront of making sure that women of color who have given the world so much are not left behind because the women of color could be exactly the group that carries us to our future. We don't know that, but we don't know that that's not true. And I will tell you that without them, our future will be very dim. Wow. Whew. 
Thank you, Dr. Robinson. I, I have had, uh, this has been very insightful for me, great perspective, a lot of information uh, for the story. Is there anything that you would like to share that I haven't asked about? Um, I have enjoyed, I've enjoyed thinking about this. Um, I have, uh, so I just want to thank you all, because, and I'm really serious when I say this. I got the questions and I spent the weekend reading and just thinking about my experiences and my master chief uh, uh, of the of the medical corps was uh, was a black woman uh, master chief Martinez I'm just thinking about all the women that I have been with in my career and it was it's very it's just very stimulating to me to have that and the same thing with with the men and and the same thing with so many different groups of people that that have been for one reason or another marginalized um and women have been marginalized you know women in general have been marginalized black women have just been uh doubly marginalized how's that but but the point is it's been something that i i have enjoyed thinking about and and that's where the passion comes out today because it's something we need to do and i think that the uh, what CCG is doing and what, what you guys are doing is just tremendous. So I'm very happy to be a part of it. Thank you so very much again. It's been a great uh, uh, privilege uh, doing this interview with you. So I'll turn it back to Ray and he will uh, sort of like walk us out of the interview. Thank you again, sir. Okay, thanks very much, Sandra. Thank you for listening to A Conversation With Vice Admiral Adam Robinson, featuring Lango Dean, presented by CCG Media. To stay up to date on the latest news in STEM, please visit www.blackengineer.com, www.hispanicengineer.com, and www.womenofcolor.online. You can also hear our catalog of interviews and conference seminars by visiting www.ccgmag.podbean.com.